0: At progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates comparison rates not available in all states or situations prices vary based on how you buy so growing up we weren't allowed to get sick and if we got sick there were two possible solutions you could either drink some water or you could go to bed mama my, my head hurt Drink you some water Mama, My the My stomach feels funny. Go to bed. That was it. Two solutions to a host of maladies. Unless, unless things really, really, really got bad. You had drank all the water you could drink, you'd slept all the sleep you could sleep, but you were still covered in sores and shivering of the plague. Then and only then would they pull out the big guns. Call a doctor? enlist a trained medical professional? Nah, 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 nah. Our church didn't believe in doctors. Our apostle taught that modern medicine was of the devil. Instead, when we really, really took ill, they called the pastor. And the pastor came to our house holding a small piece of white cloth. He poured a special olive oil onto that cloth. He pressed that olive oil onto the feverish forehead, said a few words of supplication to the eternal, then he left. And here's the thing. Most of the time, it worked. It wasn't instantaneous, but in two or three days' time, the afflicted me or my brothers would rise like Lazarus from the bed. Go outside and play. A miracle. Well, today in Snap Judgment, we're looking for miracles wherever we can find them. We proudly present Bad Medicine. Making stories from real people who need a second opinion. My name is Glenn Washington. Ask your doctor if you can get a prescription for a white cloth and some olive oil. Because you're listening. This is Snap Judgment. We're going to start off today's Snap Judgment Bad Medicine episode with Greg Stone. You see, Greg Stone, he'd reached a point in his life where he had to make some hard decisions. And his mama knew just what he should do. Snap Judgment.
1: I remember being in the interview and them saying that, like, this job has a lot to do with being direct and language. And I asked, is this hourly or is this salary? And he said, do you mean salary? And I said, yes. And he laughed thinking, ah, this guy's got a sense of humor, not realizing I was already too dumb for this job. Uh, my job was to go in with the doctors. Uh, I would have to document all the things that patients said. So that if everything ever came back in like court, they wouldn't get sued. So it was a job strictly based on being very meticulous with note taking. The first day on the job, they call a code on a patient, which meant the patient was, you know, he was going to cardiac arrest. So it's all hands on deck. The doc grabs one of the Sims. We were called Sims. Grabs one of the Sims and then says, "Greg, you come too." we both went and he's just calling out what you know the things i'm supposed to be writing down you know 20 cc's of whatever medication um we're starting compressions started at this time so we leave the room and the doctor looks at me and he says so what do you have written down and i showed him and then he pulls the other sim aside and he goes what do you have written down and i had like two paragraphs i mean i couldn't even read my handwriting then you know the other sim had you know like a bible written And he said, what's the difference between you two? And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't know how she got all that. This is like my first day. And he was like, not good enough. Not good enough. Don't come with any of my patients. I just sat in the break room for, I swear to God, eight hours. And I just ate my lunch. I just tried to, I was trying to study. I was trying to get better at the job I was supposed to do. I was reading other people's notes. I was realizing that I was like, I'm not smart enough for this. I'm not smart enough to do this job that just normal people are doing. Every day uh, in the clinical information management world was a nightmare. I would take these notes and I would be working hard at this. I'd be like nose to the grindstone, really listening. And then I would just come back and then, you know, I would look, okay, here are these notes. I worked really hard on this one. And then the doctor would go, okay, it was a man, not a woman. We gave them Tylenol not morphine. I'd be sitting at my desk writing my notes and I would just hear these patients screaming or yelling and I should probably go see what's going on. So then I'd walk in and then it would say, "Ah, why won't someone bring me a pillow? Because the nurses are too busy. So like, well, I can get you a pillow. So then I would grab them a pillow and then they would go, sweetie, you're the best. And I would go, I'm the best, you're the best. And then I would leave Just go back to my notes and um, then I would hear someone else scream and then I'm like up and then i would run over and someone you know they'd be like you know I want some jello and I'd bring him some jello and then the doctor would come back be like where's my notes and I'd be like uh, I, I don't know and I'd like try to type them real fast you know they kept me on but they kept just saying he'll get better he'll get better and I never really got better it was like a slow day and then the doc he called me and he said, um, Hey, uh, we need to talk. And he brings me into the office. And uh, he was the head of the ER. I love this guy. He was one of the best doctors. He was really, he was someone I really looked up to and wanted to prove that I can do this job to. So I remember sitting down and he was like, You know, you're not really good at this job. And I was like, I know. I know. And he's like, and you know we really like you. And I was like, I know, I uh, I know you like me. I, I really appreciate that. And he's like, and we really tried. And I go, yeah. And he's like, we, we just can't have you here if you're gonna make these kind of mistakes. You know, our, our our jobs, our careers could be on the line. So I'm sorry, but we're gonna let you go. So I remember I reached down in my pocket And I pulled out my red glasses, and I put them on, and I just started to walk towards the door, and he stops me. And he goes, Greg. And I was like, what? He was like, you wear red glasses? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And he was like, because we've been getting letters saying that the doctor with the red glasses really took his time with me. The doctor with the red glasses is really... You know, cared about my care. And I. we just kept saying, who the hell is this guy with the red glasses? We don't know what these crazy people are talking about. And he's like, and it turned down. he was like, well, it's you. You're the guy with the red glasses? And he's like, you've been talking to patients? And I'm like, yeah, my, my desk is over there. They scream. I walk in. And he was like, our patient satisfaction scores are through the roof. And we didn't know why. We don't have to fire you. And his face lit up. We're going to create you a job where you just do that. And I was like, so I don't have to take notes anymore? He was like, no! Like he ripped him in half, like threw him in the air, like comically. And he was like, you don't have to do it. You know, I walked in being like, well, this is the end of that. And then I walked out with a promotion, a better job and a raise. The new job was patient satisfaction coordinator. Giving pillows, bringing lunches, talking to people and and make sure that they were happy. And I would watch these doctors. A lot of them don't have bedside manner. So, you know, weird, uncomfortable nerds who would just be quick and curt and just say, ah, we're taking a CAT scan. And they'd leave. And then I would just see the patient like, what's CAT scan? And I'd stay in for a few seconds and go, a CAT scan is, uh, it's a it's an x-ray, but it's a 360 degree x-ray. Uh, I'm going to bring you a drink. You're going to drink that in a half hour. I'll come back. The guy name over there is Ken. He's a nice guy. He's going to take care of you. And... Patients found that to be, like, they loved it because no one would take the time to explain to them what's actually happening. Now I'm all of a sudden, I'm walking out of rooms, I'm shooting people the guns, I'm like, Jerry, Larry, Dave, hey! (laughs) I'm wheeling, wheelchairs, and people are laughing. I mean, I was like the mayor of the ER. One of my favorites, um... I will say, Jerry. And I remember walking into this patient, uh, this room, room 19, and I see this guy, and he's tied up. They have him tied uh, to the bed. And I go, hey, you know, how you doing? And uh, he was just like, I don't know why they have me tied here. And I was like, well, let me find out. I'm sorry, you all right? He was like, I'm not all right. I am being held against my will. So I walk over to the head nurse and I was like, hey, what's up, with, uh, what's up with Jerry? Why is he all tied up? And she was like, you can just see her face. She was drained, she was battered. And she was like, I can't with him anymore. And as she's going on, I hear a crash. Then I hear Jerry's roommate screaming,
0: Go to bed, Jerry! Go to bed!
1: So I go in, and not only has Jerry gotten out of his binds, but he is now butt-naked, standing in front of his roommate's bed, dancing. Just standing in place, dancing. Now this guy, the nurse just comes in, she goes like, what is he doing, he can't be dancing, he has a broken hip, you gotta put him back. So I go to grab him. Also, he's wet. I don't know why, he was just all wet. I don't know how he got wet, but he was drenched. I'm trying to grab him, he's slippery. I grab him from behind. He kicks off the bed. We fall on the ground. Now I have a naked man on top of me, dancing. And he just won't stop. And I mean, his balls are everywhere. Security runs in, the nurses run in. We all grab him and uh we put him on the bed and they start tying him up i remember seeing his face and him being like i don't know why you're doing this all i want to do is dance one day this guy comes in he was a big guy he looked like uh, fresh prince's dad philip banks uh he he came in with his kid. He was holding his hand, and they were walking in together. I look at him. I go, "Hey, how you doing?" You know, we're bringing you over your room. And he goes, oh, "I could just do me a favor. Can you bring my son into the? You know, we had like a private waiting room. Just hang out with him. Uh, I don't really want him to be in there with me." And I was like, "Sure." And uh, I bring him in. to the little room, and I just sat. And I'm, you know, saying, you know, we're just having a little time. I'm doing my stupid little kid jokes, and uh, not even three minutes later. Code red, room three, which means all hands on deck. They pulled the curtain closed. You didn't want people watching what's going on in there. They, you know, he had a massive heart attack. And he just died right on the spot. And um, there I am with this man's kid. And I don't know what to do with him. Uh, uh, The nurse, I think, had told me that they were calling the patient's brother, who was a kid's uncle, to come pick him up. So me and this little kid were just watching Spongebob, and I'm in my head knowing that in the next few minutes, the doctor's gonna come in and essentially ruin this kid's life. The doctor comes in, and they told the uncle first Then the uncle comes into the room with me, and you can see he's just, you know, broken, and he just goes, I think he just said, Daddy's dead. He didn't know how to say it, so he just yelled, Daddy's dead, to this kid. The doctor's there, and they're trying to console the uncle, and I just sat with this kid, and he cried, and and then the uncle sat with me, and we all cried. And then the doctor left, because the doctor has to do doctor things. But I couldn't leave them. This uncle I think is now raising this, he's now gonna raise this kid. And he's like, I don't know how to be a dad. And I'm like, no one knows how to be a dad, be you crazy? And then he would kind of laugh a little bit and then he would cry and then I think I was in there with him for like, for like three hours. And um, I remember walking out and the nurse looks at me and she goes, uh, what the hell's wrong with you? And I was like, what? And she was like, you can't be doing that. You can't just do this every day. You can't cry every single day. And, uh, you know, she was like, these people are going to die. These lizards are going to die. And she called like old people lizards, which is like a classic thing. And she was like, you laugh or you cry. And you cry too much. You need to start laughing. You need to start, you know, letting this wound become a scab and then a scar and then become calloused. I said, I don't want to be that person. That it's a very special person that can do that, but it is not me. You know, you would talk to these nurses who were just the sweetest, most caring people. When someone would die, they'd be like, "Yeah, I didn't think that was gonna take that long. Jeez, let's go to lunch." You know, these nurses and doctors have to develop this thick skin because it's the only way to do your job. You know, imagine you your ambulance pulled up. To a room full of crying nurses and doctors, no one would get better. Everyone would die. I would just sit with every patient and everything. Anytime someone would die, I'd cry. My heart was broken every day in that place. There was one patient who came in. Uh, he was young, he was 57 years old, and he had uh, end stage lung cancer, and he had never smoked a day in his life. Larry was this guy, and he had a really weird sense of humor. Uh, I remember one of the things I think I said was I came in with a wheelchair to bring him to x-ray, and I was like, uh, "I was like, you ready for your limousine? And he was like, yeah, what else am I doing? I'm dying. I'm not going anywhere. And I remember being like, yikes, man, like, jeez, and he was like, ha-ha, gotcha. Like he liked really dark things to get a rise out of people. So I would just constantly go back to him and and we would talk, we had great talks, Uh, And then I always ask patients, what's the thing you're the most proud of? Because that's always how you get them talking about things they're happy about. Like you just see it bring the joy back to them. So I ask him, I go, hey man, uh, what's the thing you're the most proud of? And he goes, well, I'm 57 and I've never been with a kid sexually. And I remember going, ha! Like, this guy's dying, so he's got jokes. I'll laugh at his jokes, it's a weird joke. He was doing what I thought was a bit. And then it was almost as if the room went dark. It was like, in my memory, the lights got dim and he got serious. And he went, no, you don't understand. And I was like, what? And he was like, "Uh, I've been attracted to children my entire life and I've never done anything. And uh, I froze. I don't know how to respond to that because it's like, well, I've, you know, does that make him a bad person or whatever? And I start tell, asking about it. I'm like, well, what do you mean? You know, we'll talk about it. And he says, I don't talk about this. I don't tell anybody this. But when I was young, He said, I started getting these feelings. He said, so I told my dad. Uh, His dad broke his nose, uh, told his family. His family ostracized him. He moved from California to a one bedroom in Patterson. Uh, And I remember he told me, he said he he didn't know what to do. He couldn't go to meetings for pedophiles because he didn't know if they existed. He was afraid to check online. So he was going to alcoholic meetings and trying to just find a way to get through this. He said he wouldn't drink or smoke or do anything because he was afraid it would, you know, it would take down his defenses. And he essentially said he lived secluded to himself, afraid of what he could become. And then he goes on to explain to me that he was happy to die and that was weird to um to have someone say that you're like man this guy's been fighting this his whole life and the day i was off is when he died and i remember going up to hospice and then trucking the nurse being like hey where is he and her being like oh that pedophile He's gone, thank God And I remember being furious I mean, I just remember being furious Like, you He clearly tried to just confide in someone else And she wouldn't get past The first, you know Sentence he said, I guess And I was furious at her And I was sad But then I was also Relieved I was relieved because I knew that he had now Moved on I feel all these things, and I hear this voice going, Greg, we need you downstairs. So I push those feelings aside, and I head back to work.
0: Big thanks to Greg Stone. Greg is a comedian now, an actual comedian. Living in New York, go see Greg Thank Me Later. Find out more details about Greg on our website, snapjudgment.org. Original sound design was by Leon Morimoto, and that piece was produced by Liz Mack. Now, when the Snap Judgment Bad Medicine episode continues, you're in the Army now, and the Army doesn't want to hear your excuses after this break stay tuned welcome back to snap judgment the bad medicine episode today real stories from real people wondering if the doctor is in now you've asked we have answered Our next storyteller, Snap, is a longtime friend of the show, Ray Christian. And aside from being a storytelling legend, Ray's an army man. Snap Judgment.
2: In 1984, I was a 22-year-old young sergeant assigned to an airborne infantry battalion. We were paratroopers. I was stationed at Fort Bragg. We'd conduct night combat equipment jumps that would involve thousands of paratroopers at once. The training was dangerous and it wasn't unusual for us to have guys severely injured or even killed during these training operations. We had young soldiers in the company that were Grenada vets, and our senior NCOs, a lot of them were Vietnam vets, our young soldiers who were just chomping at the bit to get a chance at combat. Guys start doing drugs, guys start drinking, guys have problems with their wives, their girlfriends. Morale in the company was starting to drop. And this added up to so much stress, we had a few guys go AWOL. Me and Sergeant Ronnie were assigned to inventory the soldier's locker and equipment who had went AWOL. It was uniforms, civilian clothing, radio cloth. And in the corner, there's this little folded bundle of aluminum foil. Unfolded, and I saw inside were two small stamps with stars on them. Whoa, acid? Nah. So I took one of the stamps out and I said, hey, Ronnie, put one of these in your mouth. He looked at me and he said, what is this, acid? I I figured it was acid, but I wasn't gonna really take one. I was just fooling around with him, you know, put it in your mouth, just kidding with him. He looked at it for a second and said, why not? And put it in his mouth and I laughed. Now, Sergeant Ronnie was the kind of guy that was very hyper-military. He was kind of strict. He had a high-pitched voice, pretty by-the-book kind of guy. He looked at me and said, so what are you going to do? He must know something I don't know. He wouldn't, he wouldn't take acid. I just knew when he put it in his mouth, it had to be fake. Then he looked at me and said, what are you going to do? I said, hey, okay, same as you. I put one in my mouth. We take the inventory sheet. We turn it in to supply. We start heading out. And as we were walking across the parking lot, the battalion sergeant major yelled out, Hey, you two guys, what are you doing? Where are you going? Said, oh, my God, sergeant major. We said, we're heading out, sergeant major, heading home. He said, oh, no, you're not. Get your gear. You're going on the jump. because we had the additional duty of inventorying this guy's equipment, we believed that we weren't gonna be involved in the jump. But but Sergeant Major, I think, uh uh-uh, he cut me off. We need to get these chutes filled. Let's go, let's move out. (sighs) So I'm starting to think about all the things that go wrong. What if I get decapitated by a suspension line? What if I get towed behind the aircraft? What if I hit some equipment on the ground? I was starting to immediately feel fear and apprehension. If we would have said something like, even slightly hesitant about about being on a jump, it would have seemed suspicious. We call people who are not on jump status legs, and that's a dirty word. I would rather have died than turned down being on a jump. I wasn't gonna be a leg, I was gonna jump. I looked at Ron and I said, man, how you feel? He said, man, I don't feel nothing, but this is bad anyway. When we were on the trucks headed to the the pack shed, this is at the Air Force Base, I started having this feeling right then and there that everybody on the truck was staring at me and I knew, oh, it's, it's starting to kick in now. We all pour inside the rigger shed, all 500 of us, and one at a time we're issued parachutes as we enter inside. Once you've got your parachute on, and you got all your equipment hooked up, you stand in line for the Jumpmaster's inspection. Open your ripcord protected flap, hold, squat, hold, recover, turn, bend, arch your back, tick, tap, 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 tick, tap, tap, turn, turn, squat, hold, I actually started saying that out loud, you know, squat, hole, squat. I was just saying it because I thought I, I should. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, if I do that, people will think I'm high. But if I act like I'm not high, they'll think I'm high. Slowly, all the guys in line started getting their parachutes inspected, and we take the seat. I wanted to sit down. But I kept standing up, I kept walking around, and that was unusual. I started to think about how many thousands of paratroopers have been in this building preparing for a jump, and I was inspired to just yell out for everyone to hear, how many paratroopers have been in this place? I started thinking about, there were ghosts, maybe, still impregnating in the memories of the building and in the walls. And I yelled that question out too. Are there any ghosts in the walls? When I was startled by two, well, what looked to be two World War II-era paratroopers coming out of the walls, I couldn't help but walk closer to it, but on closer inspection, it was just a pattern of old paint scuffs on the wall. That's when I started to notice that other people were starting to stare at me, staring at them. and A few even laughed at me. And that's where I saw Ronnie. He was already rigged, sitting on the floor crying, tears coming down his cheeks. To me, it was like a river of water. I asked Ronnie how he was doing. Ronnie looked at me, and he just started to cry. And people noticed. I went to him, and I said in a soft, loud voice, Man, get yourself together. You are an American paratrooper. Do you know what our brothers have done before you? Act like a damn man. Get it together. together. And I started singing. And I'm not a singer. And I'm singing these corny airborne songs that they, they force on us. Gory, gory, what a hell of a way to die. Gory, gory, what a hell of a way to die. Gory, gory, what a hell of a way to die, and he ain't going to jump no more. And uh, I remember somebody yelling out, oh, that's pretty damn appropriate, Sergeant Christian. It's really appropriate. Ronnie stared. I reached out, and I wiped his eye. A little tear was coming from it, and I helped him up. and, And then he assisted me in rigging my chute. Once everybody's inspected, we stand up and we all march out toward the back of the airplane. The only thing you can see inside a C-130 at night like that is this the red jump light above the uh, jump door and down the floor, and there's this hum of the plane. Mm-hmm. Usually the guys sleep, but I didn't. I was just focused on the light. I mean, it was beautiful. And the Air Force pilot turns on the green light, go. Door opened up and the wind rushed in. Normally you really feel the impact of the prop blast hitting you and you twist into the night sky, but I don't know, I had the sensation that I just jumped into a big old marshmallow cloud and I just floated out. Stars were starting to twinkle. The moon smiled at me. There's parachutes billowing across the drop zone. They looked like ghosts. They were just floating and dancing. And and, uh, I could hear everything, every sound. Threw my arms out, looked up like Jesus. Started contemplating the nature of the universe. Oh, it was just beautiful. It's probably the best jump I ever had. I loved it, I loved it. it. Seemed like it took me forever to reach the ground. I landed in a sandy pile amongst the pine trees and thickets. The guy landed close to me and he hit the ground like a sack of potatoes and he gave out an oh and I just yelled out across the old drop zone, this is beautiful. And it just echoed, and I know everybody heard that, but I couldn't help myself. It was beautiful like those other parachutes that were billowing across the drop zone. It looked like a woman in a dress. Through the doctors I heard this sound, and I, recognized it as the sound of vomiting and instead of going to the assembly area I followed that sound and that led me to Sergeant Ronnie and there he was sitting on the ground vomiting and he was crying softly and I was thinking to myself he must be having a bad trip and that's when I decided I wanted to sing to him. We're all Americans and proud to be Guardians of honor and liberty. Some flying gliders to the enemy. Some come down as paratroopers. The next morning when I woke up, the company commander, who I always try to avoid because of his manner, when he saw me, he said to me, you know you need to go see the battalion commander. He wants to talk to you about your behavior. Pre-jump, and on the drop zone. So the battalion commander doesn't speak to me. People in my rank don't usually get a chance to talk to him. And I go into the battalion commander's office. All the senior officers in the battalion were present. That kind of a group usually means something bad. You're getting some kind of a ugly reprimand. And I was scared as hell. Then he said, Never have I seen such an unselfish act as a man motivating his fellow paratroopers, sticking with a scared, nervous man during every phase of the operation, even on the drop zone. Sergeant Christian, you are the personification of an American paratrooper. Keep up the good work, airborne. I said, thank you, sir, airborne. I can remember shaking my head as I was walking away from his office going, Damn, I, I was completely dumbfounded. I, I, what just happened? It was like the blade didn't cut my head, but it fell. In the mornings when all the units are doing physical training and they run up and down Ardennes Street, they're the loudspeakers where they play nothing but non-stop military martial music. And these old airborne songs are the ones that you hear. And when they would come across the speakers, we would all start singing them really loud to Sergeant Ronnie. And you know, much to his chagrin. Sergeant Ronnie, you was scared on the drop zone, man. Sergeant Ronnie, what's up? You lost your nerve. You was having problems, Sergeant Ronnie? And he'd be running with his butt cheeks really tight. He was too stiff and too anal to respond. Up to that point, everything, all of our encounters were always serious. We really didn't have anything to joke about. There was nothing funny. I had my boys back again. They were back in their spirit. <music>
0: Big thanks to Ray Christian, who is a storyteller living in Boone, North Carolina. Now, do yourself a favor subscribe to his podcast, What's Ray Saying? It'll be available on our website or wherever you get your podcast, snapjudgment.org. Do that. The original score and sound design was by Leon Waymocho. That story was produced by Adiza Egan. Now then. Maybe you're thinking, Glenn, that was a hell of a story. Where can I get more storytelling that moves me, makes me think, leaves me emotionally enriched well? There are hours of Snap Judgment magic available right now for your listening pleasure. Get the amazing Snap Judgment podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify. And if you dig it, Snappers, leave a Snap review on iTunes. Let somebody know. Yeah. Snappers produced by the team that never gets sick. Mama called the doctor and the doctor said, no Mark Ristich jumping in the bed. Captain Sue Miller, Anna Sussman, Liz Mack, Joe Rosenberg, Nancy Lopez, Eliza Smith, Leon Morimoto, Renzo Gorio, Taylor Cot, Jasmine Aguilera. And this is not the news. No Aces News. In fact, you could lift the floor of Joe's Truck Stop 99 restroom Right off of I-75 outside of Anna, Ohio. But why, Snappers, would you ever do that? But you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.